but it's like a little like bean filled thing and it's uh-huh. really nice for my butt <gasps> i have the same thing but sometimes you sit down on the floor and it's like hurty because <laughs> your sit bones those harsh pelvic bones going into the floor was the only thing harsh on me <laughs> well besides my demeanor ah uh, yes <laughs> Are you ready to get this going? I am. I was just trying to think of what's harsh on me. Maybe my elbow, my wrist bones. Like, look at those. Like, they're just like, kicking. Anyway, <laughs> welcome everyone to Historical Shade. <laughs> this is the podcast where Julie and I talk about some shady topics in history. Um, and just a note, we are not historical. <laughs> really just dropped like everything. <laughs> okay. Oh my God. I thought I could my, my look at the screen glasses. Oh God, at least my computer is still running. Is this still recording that? Yes. <laughs> so this is the podcast where Julie can't keep her shit together. <laughs> where we read it's you. an extension of my life. <laughs> we read you um, shady topics in history. Uh, we talk about, um, I don't know, just whatever topics in history we just don't hear a lot about, I guess. Um, we are not historians. We know that history is written by the victor, and it's usually one perspective. Um, and we also are do not spend hours and hours and hours upon hours researching these things. We spend as much time as we can. Uh, so if we got something wrong, let us know. Um, and we'll talk about how to contact us afterwards. Anyway, um, Julie, now that you're done fucking stuff up, you ready to tell my story? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out if my you know, default, okay, no, my microphone is back to <laughs> the, the, to be fair, you dropped your mic. <laughs> I didn't drop my mic. I dropped my entire computer yeah. and pulled the mic with it and broke the mic cord, which is now wedged into the microphone. So it was an ordeal. So I paused and then at least I caught it now and we didn't get both of them done. And... Oh my God. Not enough wine for that. I'm sorry. That's okay. Drink okay. <laughs> Drink up, me mateys. Uh-huh. So, where did we talk? I'm just going to start over. Yeah. I don't, did we talk about the topic mm-hmm. before no. I dropped the microphone? No. Because I was like, welcome to Historical Shade. This is a, <laughs> and everything dropped. So <laughs> you even have to do the intro again, too. No, no, no. I, I recorded that and then I dropped while, everything while the chaos was happening. Okay. I finished it and then I was like, I should probably. Laura, stop. let me start my shade for the first time today. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, Laura, let's pretend like we didn't already have this conversation and let's okay. reenact this conversation. Okay. Um, do you know Percy Julian? And if so, what do you know about him? Um, before <laughs> you told me a lot about him, uh, and I forgot to record, I didn't know anything. <laughs> so, um, and yeah. thank you for clearing that up. Um, when, when I first started doing this story, I also had not heard of or learned about Percy Julian and mm-hmm. I I felt guilty like I was like somehow like not good enough um mm-hmm. at, at being learned and at learning about history and reading uh but the fact of the matter is that 
particularly with with history you know it's it's by the victors and it's also mm-hmm. sort of skewed towards <laughs> what have white men achieved let's talk about that yeah and so we're also at the mercy of our school system and if if mm-hmm. you are in a certain region or a certain school system and they and they don't teach something in high school you don't necessarily know that you've missed it mm-hmm. um so that is why we are talking about Percy Julian today, because he is someone that has done incredible things and also did them in spite of immense challenges that were uh, put on his, put upon him. Mm-hmm. So long story short, he was a steroid chemist and an entrepreneur. He ingeniously figured out how to synthesize important medicinal compounds from abundant plant sources making them more affordable to mass produce. So we have him to thank for a, a lot of things <laughs> nowadays. Yeah, for the like three cheaper drugs. Yeah, for every, for every like ridiculously expensive version of a drug, you can thank Percy Julian for the, the, the better version. Yeah. <laughs> so he was born in Montgomery, Alabama. He was the son of a railway mail clerk and the grandson of slaves. And in an era when African-Americans faced prejudice in virtually all aspects of life, not least in the scientific world, he's, he's an example of someone that succeeded against all odds. So mm-hmm. his family greatly valued education and he had to attend a segregated elementary school. And because Montgomery had no public high school for African-Americans, he was forced to attend a teacher training school instead. So by the time he graduated, um, he wasn't necessarily prepared by his high school, but nonetheless, he was accepted at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana mm-hmm. as a sub-freshman. So that means that he had to take high school courses concurrently with his freshman courses. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if the teacher training school was a way to train a high school age to then teach elementary school ages because that's as far as you went yeah i mean i mean it it feels like the like a version of like a trade school okay you're you're going to school for one specific thing so like all of your classes are are not necessarily going to be reflective like in college when you have like ged okay that's not going to happen at a teacher training school for example okay um so on he actually i have a quote uh, he said, on my first day in college, so DePaul University is a largely white liberal arts school in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And he said, on my first day in college, I remember walking in and a white fellow stuck out his hand and said, how are you? Welcome. I had never shaken hands with a white boy before and did not know whether I should or not. Oof. It's so, it's so crazy. Like, if you think of how far away he also was from his home at that time too. Like, mm-hmm. like Alabama in the, is this the twenties? Uh, he was born in 1899. So, okay. Yeah. So like 19 something, somethings like Alabama and then going to Indiana, like the amount of chutzpah it takes to do that in general, let alone go to college where you, I'm sure he was, he was so smart that he knew that he was not, up to the standards of everyone else yeah wanted to be and then to be in a completely different environment that's it's just like it's just really powerful 
because I'm an anxiety ridden mess and <laughs> I would be, I just don't know. I would be like, I think I'll stay home. <laughs> I saw like a, a thing on social media that was like a series of like tweets or writings or whatever about like, like people that experience anxiety. And one that like struck me so much was someone talking about like reliving so many conversations in their head yeah. of like feeling like you didn't represent yourself well or you said the wrong thing or like you didn't defend yourself and you like still go through those conversations in your mind and I 100% do that like there's like there's a specific conversation that I like replay in my head like once a month <laughs> oh yeah from like years ago I have I have one or two that I'm like <laughs> and I I don't think those people have ever thought about it since. Yeah. <laughs> um, so despite having to take remedial courses to catch up to his peers and experiencing considerable racial discrimination, because I, I do want to like point out that's wonderful that that guy walked up to him and like tried to shake his hand, but mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily, like Indiana wasn't like some like magic, like respite yeah. away <laughs> from, from issues of that time. Um, he ended up here in a bachelor's degree in chemistry. He graduated Phi Beta Kappa, and he was valedictorian of his class. Woohoo! Yeah. Wowza. Yeah, in 1920. So after graduation, he taught chemistry at Fisk University for two years. And then, oh my God, I'm yawning. I'm not having, wine. I'm not having wine with recording anymore. Because <laughs> it just makes you sleepy. Yeah. Uh, he and then he won the Austin an Austin fellowship to Harvard University, where he completed a master's degree in organic chemistry. So now he is an undergrad. He has a master's degree. So then he goes to University of Vienna, Austria, to begin doctoral studies in on the chemistry of medicinal plants. And he becomes only the third African American in the United States to hold a PhD in chemistry. Wow. So in 1931, he and a Viennese colleague, Joseph Pickle, Pickel, Pickle, P-I-P-L, they took positions back in the United States at Howard and then two years later moved to DePaul. Mm -hmm. And while they were there, they accomplished the first total synthesis of physostigmine, which is the active principle of the calabar bean, used since the end of the 19th century to treat glaucoma. Mm -hmm. um, calabar bean makes me think of Caliban, which then like just sends me on like a Shakespeare spiral, I should note. Unrelated to this. <laughs> since this is the second time <laughs> I've talked about the calabar bean today. I'm sorry, I forgot. <laughs> Okay. So with physostigmine, mm -hmm. it's an alkaloid and it eases the constriction of outflow channels from the eye's aqueous humor to relieve high pressure there. So uh, if glaucoma is left untreated, it damages the retina and eventually causes blindness. Mm -hmm. So while they're doing that, researchers in other countries are seeking innovative and cost-effective way to synthesize steroids including cortisone and sex hormones, the sex mm -hmm. hormones, not like, mm, you want some sex hormones? Like, yeah. So 
essentially in the like the ones from puberty, not like the fun ones when you're an adult. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the difference. So essentially in the 1930s, chemists are recognizing that there's a structural similarity of a lot of like a large group of these natural substances, these steroids. And that includes the sex hormones, the cortical hormones, the adrenal glands. Mm -hmm. And so there's a huge medicinal potential in these compounds. But at the time, really the only option is uh, extracting sufficient quantities of them from animal tissues and like other fluids. And so obviously that's expensive and it's also limited. And also like we want animals to be on this earth. Mm -hmm. So they eventually discovered that the steroid stigmasterol, which we know uh, Julian had obtained as a byproduct of the physostigmine synthesis, um, they discovered that it could also be obtained from soybeans mm -hmm. and that it could be used in the synthesis of certain sex hormones, including progesterone, which is uh, the female sex hormone that's very important in helping pregnant women avoid miscarriages. So Julian finds out about this lead, um, and he, in 1936, writes to the Glidden Company in Chicago requesting samples of their soybean oil. Mm. And so I, I don't have, like, specific details, but uh, what, what the article I read had said was through a series of events, uh, he wound up being hired by Glidden instead. Uh -huh. Reading other articles, I think a lot of those series of events had to do with the fact that despite the fact that he was like incredibly qualified, incredibly smart, doing a ton of research that could, you know, bring a lot of exposure to any college that he was working at, he wasn't necessarily getting tenure. He wasn't being allowed to teach certain classes. And, and so facing that racial discrimination he winds up becoming the director of research in the soya division at Glynn instead. Mm -hmm. And it was there that he sets out about figuring out ways to make new products from soybeans. And I just want to give a shout out to soybeans. I want to talk about like, talk about knowing your worth because he had a successful job there, but he knew that he was worth more. And so he was like, you know what? I'm going to go hang out with some soybeans because they appreciate me. And well, I mean, not just that it, that it was worth more, but that sort of his, his goal and his vision of like continuing to research and continuing yeah. to find ways to make things better and to make things more accessible led him to Glidden. Which was probably a company that was a little bit more like, yeah, we trust you. Like, do what you need to do. So while he was there, uh, he invented AeroFoam, which is a product that uses soy protein to put out oil and gas fires. It was widely used during World War II. Uh, and, and he was also responsible for other soy-based inventions. And uh, like soy, first of all, is delicious. Mm -hmm. But it's also just in so many products. I'm going to act like I'm pulling this from memory, but I'm pulling up an article. Uh, that lists that. And it, I mean, Play-Doh, oh, here's one. It's in a nativity set, holiday cards, wrapping paper. It's in a lot of makeup, um, toner cartridges, uh, stuffed toys, puzzles, crayons, cleaner. Soy is all around you. Oh. So three years after arriving at Glidden, 
in the soy division. Uh, he learned from plant workers that water had leaked into a tank of purified soybean oil and formed a white mass, which he immediately identifies as the substance stigmasterol. So he realizes that he has stumbled upon a method for producing large amounts of steroid from soybeans. Mm -hmm. And so scientists already knew how to synthesize progesterone from stigmasterol, but they didn't have a method for doing it on a mass on a massive scale. Yeah, it was just like a little bit here, like here's a teaspoon. Right. And here's so now he's got large quantities of stigmasterol at hand. So he's able to develop an industrial process to convert it in bulk. And now he can produce five to six pounds of progesterone per day. So in that era, that's worth about like thousands of dollars. Per day. Per day. And soon other sex hormones were in production. All, all, all out of soy. All out of a soybean factory. All, yeah. So in 1949, he developed a new synthesis for a related substance called substance S which is also present in the adrenal cortex and differing from cortisone by one oxygen atom. So from this substance, he's able to synthesize both cortisone and hydrocortisone. And he finds a way to, to um, make, essentially by making synthetic cortisone, this wonder drug that had previously been ridiculously expensive is now affordable to millions of arthritis sufferers. That is until like the private insurance industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> grumble, grumble, grumble. That's um, amazing. So he's doing really well. He's doing so much service for the world at large with his research. Yeah. And in recognition of his contributions to society, he's actually named Chicagoan of the Year in 1950. <gasps> That's cool. Yeah. So he's like an awesome person. Yeah. Um, and, oh gosh, I just got a pop-up from something. Okay. <laughs> and despite all of this, um, he and his wife, Anna, they and their two children, they moved to Oak Park, Illinois, which is a predominantly white, affluent suburb of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And it was there that they encountered violent resistance to them moving in. Um, before they even physically moved into their house, uh, the family's home was being renovated. Mm -hmm. And on November 22nd, 1950, arsonists broke in and uh, splashed gasoline on the walls and floors of its 15 rooms. But failing to light the gasoline with a long gauze fuse, the vandals tossed a kerosene torch through a porch window. Um, and there's like, a horrendous picture of like one of the firemen mm -hmm. um, investigating. I'm using quote fingers for those of you listening. And like, it, it almost looks like a stage photograph because he's like standing outside the window that the kerosene lamp is thrown through. And there's like mm -hmm. a board on the inside now. And he's just like holding a flashlight. <laughs> but I think it's broad daylight because the flashlight's not on. Yeah. And he's like holding it at a window that's like obviously already been inspected because there's a board on the inside of a house <laughs> like it's it's weird yeah so eight months after that he's turned away from the downtown union league club where he'd been invited to a luncheon in honor of a white scientist um the the club was off limits to blacks and mm -hmm. he um he spoke to a tribune reporter about this and he said 
when individuals supposedly in high places behave as the Un Union League Club has behaved, ordinary citizens of lesser intelligence follow suit. Uh, other things that happen. Uh, June 12th, 1951, a second attack happens and a stick of dynamite is thrown at his house. Holy shit. Um, and, and so he, he did a lot of um, interviews with the Chicago Tribune. Yeah. And he was very well spoken in, in the way he talked about things. And, and so when he explained why he wanted to continue living in Oak Park, which, I mean, I'm, I'm so glad that, I'm not, I don't want to be like, I'm so glad he, he didn't back down and move out. But but I am like this, this man mm -hmm. by staying and by standing his ground, he set a precedent for others and, you know, not everybody felt that way. And mm -hmm. so hopefully that sent a message to people, but he said he'd hoped to prevent his two children from experiencing the fear that he'd known in the Jim Crow South. Mm -hmm. And he said, but the other night, my little girl knew fear for the first time in her life. He told the Tribune, she remembered the bomb and asked someone to come into her bedroom to comfort her so she could go to sleep. So despite all these attempts to, to intimidate him, they stood their ground, they remained in Oak Park. And, and I think because of that, um, things continuing to happen and him just being like, no, we're, we're saying. Mm -hmm. um, eventually, Time Magazine picks up the story. Okay. And so then the editors of The Oak Leaves. Oh which is the village newspaper. Mm -hmm. They're of course livid. Mm -hmm. um, and I do just want to put like a trigger warning here because there's a lot of quotes here from not good humans mm -hmm. um, in which they uh, try to, to, to blame other people, cast out, whatever. But they said um, in an editorial, they wrote, if it is possible to libel a town, Oak Park was libeled in the last issue of Time, the weekly news magazine, when it reported the shocking attempt to burn the home of Dr. Percy L. Julian. There is no evidence of any kind that an Oak Park person or persons had any part in the arson attempt as the Time inferred. Um, and so <laughs> for weeks afterwards, there's like constant stream of letters to the editor that sort of showed the the divide about this issue um a group of local clergy wrote it is with deep with a deep sense of humility and shame that we as ministers stand before those within and without our congregations in the presence of such an expression of pagan and un-american hatred and prejudice Oof. but there's always a conspiracy theorist mm -hmm. always so another reader put on their tinfoil hat and suggested an alternative to the theory that he was the victim of white supremacist, white racists, and said maybe some of his own race are resentful of him for going high hat on them, moving into the exclusive part of an all-white neighborhood, or for attending a white church, as I'm told he does. Uh, uh, flip a table. Oh, it gets worse. Oh, no. Still another reader noted that the, quote, special pleaders for the Negro race, end quote, didn't speak up when a white police officer's house was torched, but, quote, but let a Negro be the purported victim, and these gentlemen and ladies don the sackcloth, order up extra portions of ashes, and go into such an orgy of breast beating and wailing as might try the patience of a Job. 
Um, which like, I just, I have to stop there because it's just like, you just replace some of the names and the incident and it's 100% oh, yeah. anytime something happens online, you immediately get the like crazy conspiracy theorists being like, no, this is all a sham. It's a sham by the people that are on the side of this person. It's a sham by the people that are against them. Um, like there was that whole thing recently about the little boy in Australia. Oh, the little, the boy who got bullied? Yeah. And then, and then Hugh, Hugh Jackman and all of them were yeah, so like he, rallying against him or for him. So he, I, I can't remember his name, but he's like a, a nine-year-old kid and horrendously bullied. And mm-hmm. of course, within 24 hours, there were all these like conspiracy theorists saying he's actually an 18-year-old. He has sponsorships and and it's like, I saw someone post this on a, on another person's wall that where they were like, um, excuse me, look at all these pictures of him. Like that is his 18th birthday. And it was the most horrendously photo, like Photoshopped stuff. And, yeah. and then like, all you have to do is like a, another Google search. And there's like a video a few years ago when he was four and his mom's doing an interview. I mean, it's just, yeah in this day and age it's so easy to do your research although i should say like with those like deep fake videos it is becoming harder Mm -hmm. um but that's exactly what happens that cycle of like putting the blame on everyone but the people that did it yeah so back to julian um he wasn't a a special pleader as this person noted, uh, in 1958, as the Tribune reported, he spoke candidly about social problems in the black community. He said, our crime rate has become so alarming that those of us who have struggled so long to merit freedom are struck dumb with panic. He told a board meeting at the Chicago YWCA. Um, but I think that that is, is such an important quote because I'm gonna talk about all the things he did, not only for us, but the, as a human race, but also for his community. Um, So let's talk about his achievements. Yeah. Because apart from, um, you know, apart from what he did as a scientist, in 1953, he established Julian Laboratories to produce synthetic steroids, which pharmaceutical companies used to make drugs. But he, his whole thing was, open-minded hiring practices. Uh, He explained in an interview, we have a mixture of races and religions and we work together and get along. If American democracy won't work anywhere else, we are determined to make it work here in our laboratory. So he proved to be as talented as an entrepreneur as he was a chemist. His Uh company flourished. He was a millionaire. Yeah, he was a millionaire when he sold it in 1961. By the 1970s, he had more than 100 patents to his name and was, yeah, and was widely recognized as an innovator who had helped make a range of medicines more affordable. Uh, he was also a prominent civic and civil rights leader. He raised funds. He spoke publicly for racial justice and full equality for all Americans. Um, and you know, in addition to what he had already said about his labs, his labs were also the training ground for dozens of promising young African-American chemists. And so, 
for his contributions to humanity. He received 18 honorary degrees and (laughs) more than a dozen civic and scientific awards. And he was the second African-American elected to the National Academy of Sciences Sciences, and the first chemist uh, and not to leave out his lovely wife. Um, Anna was the first African-American woman to earn a PhD in sociology. So this, this was a guy that, um, what a couple. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he literally talks, um, you know, stories about his grandfather who was a a slave in the field and, and what he learned from him and, and all of that. And this is a man that has done, did so much Mm -hmm. for us and for the world at large. And like, we, we don't talk about him enough. He did get a stamp. Um, I think he's due another one. Uh, <laughs> I feel I feel like um, now that uh, social media exists, we have to like re we have to re-acknowledge a lot of people before like we all just like shrink into this like horrible sad sack. Yeah. And that is the story of Percy Julian. Oh, so good, so good. Now I want to see his stamp. Um, and how cool about his wife too? Because I get I like. Not only he, he was progressive in a million different ways, but that's also a big thing for him to be like, for him to be like, it's okay, honey. I know we have to, like, you go after your dreams and you're smart as heck too. Like that's, because a PhD is no laughing matter. It's a lot of work. So that's great. That was great. It's harsh because a lot of it still rings true today. Um, I, th- I think that's kind of the, the scariest thing yeah. since we've started doing this. How many times there's um, a quote or, or anything where you're like, Christ, that could 100% apply to something that's going on now. Mm-hmm. So what's your future light, Miss Julie? Oh, my future light. I'm going to be like very... Um, immediate future light Mm -hmm. um it's sunday i don't i don't have anywhere to be um and i'm just really looking forward to getting some like personal creative projects done and and cleaning the house and consequently doing some food stuff and cleaning up the fridge i just i i'm looking at the time and i'm like i'm in a place where i could be set up to have a kind of relaxing week because I don't have to worry about anything else. Yeah. Although I do currently have two boxes of broken bookshelves in my living room. <laughs> I ordered a bookshelf from Overstock. Uh-huh. And the first one they sent, like both side panels were broken. Okay. So I called them and, and first they were like, oh, we'll, we'll find the replacement parts and we'll send you just the replacement parts. I'm like, great, okay. Yeah. Um, then I guess they couldn't find them. So they emailed my husband, uh, and somehow found my parents' number and called that like the very 1970s of them. Like my parents' phone number is not on my overstock account. I don't know how they found it, but like (laughs) when, when you have parents that don't do online shopping and a company called Overstock calls them and tells them that they need their daughter to call you, you get a very frantic call. 
Yeah. Because they don't know that it's about your furniture that was broken. Yeah. So ultimately they sent me another one, which was also broken. So now I have two boxes of broken bookshelves and I'm waiting to hear back from them about the next step. Is, is this the first time you've ordered from Overstock? No, I, the whole reason I ordered this bookshelf is because I ordered it before and I okay. love it. <laughs> oh, okay. Cause I was like, if this is your first, I've never shopped at Overstock. I've always, I've always had a good experience, but like, I don't, I don't know what happened to the section of the warehouse where the rest of these bookshelves were because yeah. it's a disaster. Like we keep getting these boxes and there's like holes in the boxes and like, it looks like somebody like, it looked like poor Buddy the Elf, like his first assignment was like, okay, Buddy, retape these boxes. And he was just all thumbs. I don't know what's happening. There's madness at Overstock. If anyone has an in with Overstock and can tell, tell us what's going on. What's happening. Tell I us need the drama. an update. Um, cool. My future life is kind of similar. I... I was, I could have easily found more things to do tonight and like go places. And I actually canceled a few things because I had a very packed, like down to an hour, like week, like the whole week I had everything every night, like something every night. And then I had something all day Saturday, like morning, da, 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 da. Um, and then I had stuff this morning that I had, so I'm excited to have a really chill night. I might bake some cookies or I have some bananas that are starting to go bad and make some like banana bread um, and just chill. So I have the same future light. That's great. I'm already in my comfy pants. Yeah. So all you listeners, get in your comfy pants. Thanks for listening. Oh, now I can drink my wine again. Yay! <laughs> Bye! underscore shade or facebook at historical shade we don't have a twitter thanks julie <laughs>